from hell, this is the Monstrous Feminine Podcast. My name is Louisa and I'm joined by my coven members, Mila, Taya and Mina. And we're here to talk about the representation of women in horror films. It's a fascinating topic for us because we've noticed that women in many ways make horror. Horror relies on our screams, our virginity, our blood, our bodies, our sanity, our insanity. But we find that not often enough are these horror tropes discussed by women. So we want to give voice to these themes and critiques and just have a space where we can genuinely geek out about horror. As you may have noticed, we've borrowed our title from the iconic Barbara Creed, who breaks down the female monsters we see in horror into five categories. The archaic mother, the monstrous womb, the witch, the possessed woman, and the vampire. In this episode, we'll be focusing specifically on the last three. To help us address this topic, we'll be taking a look at female representation in the 1976 classic directed by Brian De Palma, Carrie. Then we're going to look at 2009 cult classic, Jennifer's Body, written by Diablo Cody and directed by Karen Kusama. And finally, we're also analysing the independent film, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which came out in 2014 and is directed by Anna Lily Amir Poor. So guys, what was your first encounter with horror? Taya? I saw The Shining when I was like way too young. I think I was like six. And my parents were watching it and I walked in the room and thought it looked like a cool movie. Uh, it was until the twins were in the hallway. <laughs> we pressed on and now I'm a horror movie fan. Mina, what about you? Um, so I think I was kind of set out for it because I was named after Wilhelmina Harker. She's the girl that Dracula is basically obsessed with and like tries to suck all of her blood out and stuff. Fitting. <laughs> Like, thanks to my parents for naming me that. Um, I think I, like, didn't like horror for a very long time. I'm not sure I still like it because I get really scared. How about you, Mila? Um, So when I was about nine or ten, I picked up what I thought was the DVD of The Labyrinth, um, but it turned out to be Pan's Labyrinth. I mean, I wouldn't say it's straight horror, but it's pretty traumatizing. It's creepy. Yeah, and I watched all of it thinking, where is Jennifer Connelly? And where is it? Yeah. (laughs) Why is this in Spanish? Yeah, (laughs) What about you, Louisa? So I'm like a horror newbie. Like, I only started watching horror at 19 as well. But that's because my mom traumatized me. So at like seven to like nine, I don't know how old, I caught a glimpse of The Sixth Sense, which isn't even a horror, but it's like it's that weird. Um, okay, wait till you hear the story. Right? <laughs> Let's not judge. And it's the little kid. He's like, I see dead people. And there's this one scene where he like walks into the kitchen and this woman with like brown hair um, she like turns around, she has like slashed wrists and she's like, look what you made me do. And this gave me nightmares because the woman like vaguely resembled my mom. And I was like terrified. And my mom being so like comforting and lovely that she is, she just one day hid in the kitchen, waited for me to come in. And then when I did, she just turned around and screamed at me, look what you made me do. Oh my God. I was traumatized. Well, that that's is hilarious. Horrifying, yeah. It's fine. A little bit of trauma is character building. So <laughs> for sure. At times throughout this episode, we will also be including clips from an interview with a very special guest, Kay Purvis. Kay is a British-Asian filmmaker and creator of the independent film company Bad Wolf Films. Her first film, Maya, is about jinn possession. In Pakistan, jinn are supernatural forces who take over your mind, in a process similar to demonic possession. Her second film, called Black Lake, is about a churel, which is a South Asian witch. Because these films are not yet out to the public, this is truly a privilege. We get to have an exclusive sneak peek at how monstrous women are created from the perspective of someone who is behind the camera. 
So what are your thoughts on the Monstrous Feminine? Uh, Louise, do you want to go first? So from like my perspective of it, she basically looks at all the critique of horror films before her and she says like people are analyzing women as a victim because they're kind of using Freud's belief that women are already castrated. But she goes, no, no, no. Women are not the victims because they're castrated. Women are actually the monsters because they have the ability to castrate. And then from there, she goes and talks about how women are monstrous and it's largely linked to our reproductive body parts and waist. Vaginas. Vaginas. (laughs) Essentially, vaginas, wombs, (laughs) menstrual blood. That's why we wanted to sort of base this podcast off of her work because we want to take a look at new perspectives on horror movies, especially all being women. But she also says it's not necessarily a completely empowering position. Yeah. Because like, you know, men fear those things and that's why they're scary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So it's like a negotiation of power, basically. Definitely. That nuance is what makes it interesting to talk about. There's also the abject. So what is the abject? I would say like anything that's taboo or that freaks you out the visual of it makes you afraid like blood or puke or things that are just taboo in general like incest or yeah. things that they will use in a horror movie in association with the monstrous feminine yeah so it's like anything that also breaks down your own identity so if it's like the boundary between self and other like waste or i guess the womb because that grows life but it's also mm. it reminds you of death which is why it's scary and often depicted in horror films that's why reproductive organs tend to be such a freaky deaky thing. She also says that corpse-like images kind of fuse sex and death with Medusa-like figures that are sexy but evil at the same time. They display male anxieties about female sexuality. Creepy Gary, creepy Gary! So the first category of female monsters that we're going to discuss is the witch. And for this, we've chosen Carrie because it's mentioned in Creed's book. So it's like a nice way to open up her themes. I think the important thing is ministration being linked to receiving your powers or the activation of the horror of in women. You mm. see that in Carrie for sure, because she has that bloody period scene that every girl's worst nightmare is and then we also see in other horror movies as well like in the witch and even in the exorcist it's marked by like the period of i guess sexual maturity is when you become the monster or the witch there's kind of a contradiction in that that getting your period makes you a monster but it's Mm -hmm. also like signals like when you become sexually mature or you're able to at least be pregnant and it's kind of like that's good or at least you become sexual toward a male gaze, yeah. but also you're tainted, you're dirty, or you're monstrous. Yeah. It's a lose-lose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lose-lose, yeah. Perhaps Probably like... win because you get power. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. become witches. True, true. Almost. Perhaps that link between reaching sexual maturity and becoming the monster is because castration anxiety is ultimately at the highest during sexual intercourse because mm. the penis is literally disappearing into the vagina, so that would be... <laughs> How did it work it's again? lost. <laughs> Never coming back. It's like when, um, when you were younger and you'd be like, yeah. will the tampon get lost inside me? That's a valid <laughs> That's fear. That's a legitimate fear, though. That's a legit- legitimate fear. When I you understand that. Yeah. It can actually yeah. happen. My aunt lost one for like six months. <laughs> oh, my God. She actually had sepsis, though, so that's not oh, funny. Oh, dear. Is she okay? She's fine now. Oh, She's okay. perfectly fine. She had children. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Please don't put that in there. My aunt wouldn't like it. <laughs> but yeah, back to witches. Yeah. Like... The fact that they're quite scary figures because they're so associated. If their powers come with menstruation, then they're so seeped in blood, which itself is an abject 
object? Fluid. Abject fluid. Abject object. Yeah. Nice. With Carrie, obviously, she's literally seeped in blood, and that's like the whole irony that everyone's teasing her that she has her period. What do you actually think of that shower scene, like when she gets her period? That is like the most controversial bit, right? Like people yeah. like the male gaze. Like, why is it so sexualized? Like, there's arguments that she's masturbating. What it seems to be a very male idea of what defensive. Not so much offensive. Yeah. It's more something I would expect from a movie and definitely a horror movie because you want to kind of I guess dramatize it to the point where it could be maybe aestheticized or plays into the whole horror trope and yeah you said like is she masturbating I think it's sort of maybe sexualized her a little bit too much she like blood is like equated person. to her being stabbed and she's like screaming yeah. this guttural yeah. scream and everyone's laughing there's like a whole scene no one is bleeding the amount to be stabbed and like bleed to death <laughs> but I can't on understand period. why they're yelling at her she like put her period blood hands all over everybody I'd be like Actually, I'd be sad. like get off too <laughs> yeah and she also didn't seem to know what it was which I guess also makes her like an ostracized person because they're like oh this girl doesn't even know what a period is she doesn't even know what being a woman is like she's such a weirdo I think yeah. it plays along with that and her mum being a religious fanatic coincides with what Creed's saying about witches and menstruation because they're always associated with sexual deviancies. So her mum's like, oh, you've got your period now, so you need to pray. She locks her in the closet. Like, it's all terrible. Then I read a more redeeming review. It was on Deep Focus, and it was talking about how De Palma and Cohen, like, intentionally muted her psychic abilities. They only show her having, like, psychic powers when she's being, like, abused. So it has more of an emotional trajectory. And I thought maybe that was a more redeeming interpretation of it because if it's it's not necessarily, like, always the male gaze. Like, maybe they are trying to put in the work to show that Carrie's not just a monster because she's a witch who has her period, but she's also a victim. Like, she's being tormented by her peers. You mean in um, comparing it to the book? Yeah, yeah, Stephen yeah. King's book. Yeah, I the wonder OG. why they chose to like make her I guess you sympathize more with her maybe just because it's slightly dated as a film yeah I find it a little bit too ridiculous to like (laughs) (laughs) to sympathize with her yeah who did you empathize with no one (laughs) (laughs) Gary flop for you (laughs) flop it fail I think it's just like more of a spectacle to watch now mm-hmm. and because like I'd heard it so much about it before and I mean I watched it a while ago but it kind of seems like just a film study to me and then I could never really enjoy it or get yeah. into it so do you not align with someone when you're watching it because I'm not a psychopath yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just that film for some reason I disagree I think she's like really emotional and I think it's like kind of psychological like you really see her abuse happening as the film progresses and there's a definite sort of decline and trajectory and like by the time she kills everyone I'm like yeah I did get some satisfaction from the end I don't know if I was a satisfaction but I did find it interesting about how her powers seem to be strongest when she's like covered in blood because like she really goes off on everyone and destroys everyone once they cover her in that pig's blood which justifiably like was disgusting and cruel but her response of course to murder people who didn't have anything to do with it was like pretty brutal. But she I did think, show him though. I was yeah. like, I'm like, go off. <laughs> Maybe the blood is kind of like a dark baptism of yeah. I like that. This kind of relates to what Creed says on blood. Firstly, it threatens the identity of each sex in the face of sexual difference. And she also says that woman's blood points to the fertile nature of the female body. And it basically bears witness to women's alliance with the natural world. I guess if she's like closer to nature and it's something that men can understand and if you're seeped in it, it's like kind of 
you're mystifying the patriarchy. So there's a power in that. I think, yeah, I agree with that. Apart from, I don't know, the connection between women. Hater. No, 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 no. <laughs> she just doesn't like hating. <laughs> the connection between women and like menstruation and the moon and like mysticism, it seems almost patronizing. Oh, so women sure, are like, sure. oh, this mysterious being who just bleed every month how on earth does that happen plays a little bit into that maybe that's because it's a male director so maybe it's a good time to cut into our special clip from our interview with Kay because she is talking about it from a female director's perspective so I think that she talks about basically how there's a psychological aspect to demonic possession not quite the witch but she's talking about gin possession and then she goes into her film called Maya, which was filmed in Pakistan, and she talks to us about how the female body is received in a viewing in Pakistan. Like, I felt really compelled to tell this this story. Mm -hmm. I really did. And it all tied in with the kind of treatment of women. So people sometimes argue, you get a lot of superstitious people in kind of third world countries, so there's this kind of argument that those things only happen there. Uh, And I've talked to quite a few people in Pakistan, people, women who might have suffered from like epilepsy, but they've been treated for demonic possession right. and things like that. So I really wanted to write a story that well, had a central character of a, of a woman and kind of explore that thin line between demonic possession and the kind of psychological nature of it. So there's, there's a moment where Maya wakes up and she's on her period and there's a bit of blood on the sheets and she goes in for a shower and there's a bit of blood that trickles down her leg. And it was that moment when Everybody who's watching me just held their breath. There's nothing scarier than a period. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know what? I thought, God, uh, you know, I'm probably going to have to go into hiding after this. But despite how terrifying all the other concepts were in the film, you know, gin possession, they believe in it, and all this other stuff, that was the one thing I thought was the most controversial thing about that film. But for me, it just felt so normal. I mean, I guess I did put it in there to kind of challenge the way things are looked at, because things like periods and sex things like the, you know these things are very much taboo um but i just kind of wanted to, the film to be as realistic as possible so right. there's a lot of nightmare sequences and like personal, personally speaking if i've had a really horrific nightmare i know i'm due so i kind of used my own personal experience and i thought well this is what this is something i'm just going to throw into my movie you know she's had a really horrible nightmare is it a nightmare is it a memory what is she, you know what's going on in her subconscious and then she wakes up and she's on her period for me it's like well you know it's just the way it is it's like a superpower you have. <laughs> <laughs> i wish i had So our next monster category is the possessed woman. We've chosen the iconic Jennifer's body for it. Megan Fox as a hot possessed woman. This is what dreams made. I am going to eat your soul and shit it out, Thought you only murder boys. I go both ways. <laughs> That's what my dreams are made of. Oh, really? <laughs> she is hot. She, she is, is hot. She is hot. She's also a great actress, and we're yeah, not yeah, objecting to her. Yeah, yeah. Also, pigs who should concentrate, which is basically the whole problem of Jennifer's body, right? Like how everyone was too distracted by Megan Fox being Even hot. Even we just objectified. Yeah, her. guys, that was all, uh, that was a bit. I we didn't were just partaking of that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit. It was a bit. <laughs> we weren't sexualizing her. <laughs> we were, but she is hot. Just we, yeah, we make, oh, we want to okay. make that clear. So, like, why did it flop? Okay, I think it really comes down to. It was a movie marketed to men, but it was a movie made for women. 
I think rewatching it recently, I was like, of course, nobody liked this. Like, mm. I mean, the sort of young white male demographic. I think it has always has always been and will always be like quite controversial and unique and really hard to get. I don't mean that in like a high art, bougie <laughs> bullshit kind of Definitely way. Definitely not high art. <laughs> Definitely not. But it is like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know. It's really distinct and like such a female experience. Yeah. Yeah. I get what you're saying because I only watched it recently and that was like going into it having like all those posters where she literally looks like a porn star yeah. like Megan Fox that is she's dressed in like some skimpy schoolgirl outfit with her legs splayed like in front of a chalkboard and that was the that was all I knew of it I didn't even know that Amanda Seyfried was in it until I watched it and I was like oh there's there's two girls in here like there's two women leads and the film's actually about their relationship and it's yeah. kind of gay which is great we love it's super gay we love things which are super gay but yeah but it has a female director like what does that tell us I think an interesting conversation to have about this is like this movie wasn't successful when it was released but would it be successful now because we've had a lot of female directed movies and female written films like Booksmart that recently came out that people really aimed towards women and they also weren't successful so I'm not sure if that was the exact reason why it was unsuccessful in actuality I think the film is kind of exploring the relationship between Needy and Jennifer and also like sexuality as means for death which like we talked about the link between sex and death earlier because like Jennifer uses her sex sexuality to get her victims and it's like only when she says i go both ways is she able to like tr- even try to kill needy yeah but before that it's like she only goes for men so it's like her sexual attraction or her ability to have sex with someone is innately what makes her be able to kill them and absorb their powers yeah so yeah. i don't know you're right about like the horror elements not quite being scary enough mm-hmm. but then also megan fox wasn't sexualized i guess to the limit but like teenage boys would be satisfied with so I think it kind of failed like as no I wouldn't say it failed as a horror movie at least I wouldn't see it as like a traditional horror movie at all it probably failed in like people's expectations as a horror movie but also as like a kind of like sexy B movie oh Megan Fox is going to be naked does she actually have sex with any of them because she kills them before she says that she's not a virgin she's not nude in the movie at all either it's like very much I would say almost satirical like what you would want her to be this gaudy sexy goddess but she in actuality is like a monster she doesn't get naked it's not really like that Transformers disgusting gaze that you get of her. Yeah. It's like her actually being this beast which is in, be- in like kind of a weird empowering way as well. She so. kind of lures men in with that. Yeah. Yeah. She's like and then doesn't actually kind of like leaves them hanging. Blue balls. <laughs> <laughs> like actually kills them. Blue body. <laughs> it's recently been called timely due to the Me Too movement and that kind of like says that violence against women is a recent trend. That's a bit weird. I think it would have been successful, like you were saying, Mila, had it been marketed to the right demographic at the time. Because like, if I had seen that, because I found their relationship quite relatable. I was like half in love, half envious of like my super pretty straight best friend. But if it had been marketed about like, <laughs> hey, if you're a young girl, you might enjoy this movie because it's like fun and camp, but it's also about female relationships. And like the cool. messy, ugly sides of female relationships. Yeah. And like that they're both kind of shitty at Jennifer more than... Um, needy they both can be kind of like annoying and needy is literally needy called needy. <laughs> yeah needy is needy as hell they're both like kind of dependent on each other to like i don't know satisfy each other's insecurities and I, that is kind of female friendship sometimes but maybe that was received really badly at the time with what mina said about 
uh, the Me Too movement earlier, I think it's kind of important to think about what it means for Jennifer, well, them wanting to basically sacrifice a virgin in order to get success and how many men in the industry actually use women's innocence as a pedestal to get to success or to sacrifice women to get to success as well. And Mm -hmm. maybe that metaphor is also something that turned off male audiences or audiences in general, because maybe people weren't ready to have that discussion. Then, as we are now that we've seen so many people abuse their power in order to uh, make women do things and elevate their position. With Jennifer as a monster, though, what do you guys think about her really does fit with the possession narrative? Well, she's obviously demonically possessed from the failed exorcism, but is that also kind of like the final girl thing? Like Jennifer could not be the final girl and she had to be possessed because she wasn't a virgin. And so she wasn't pure enough to just have like this pure death. She now has to live her life as a monster. I think that's a really interesting reversion of Creed's theory because she analyzed it in relation to The Exorcist, which I think she's like 12 or 13, Reagan is in the film. And so she's Mm -hmm. literally innocent virgin and she's possessed and that's why it's so like taboo when she starts saying all these horrible, sexually violent things and becoming a really abject figure that possession makes you become. Um, Whereas Jennifer is not innocent in the traditional sense like obviously she's still a victim she's Mm -hmm. like stabbed in this sort of penetrative like rape aligned metaphorical action if you'd argue that she's more powerful like jennifer has to die but needy gets like a transference of her powers and she's also had sex and she doesn't seem to get any of the drawbacks she just got like scratched and is like able to escape prison and like go after people and get vengeance so it's not like having sex means that there's no end necessarily in, mm-hmm. or there is an end for you in jennifer's body i think it's a little yeah. bit more optimistic than that there's a really interesting like psychic connection between needy and jennifer like when jennifer's off killing boys and needy will like feel her like kissing them she'll feel like i don't know and when yeah. they're like both having sex at the same time needy like sees all those visions of like the blood on the ceiling and that quarterback or something sat in the chair and I didn't know what to think of it like that sort of doppelganger like riff-off female relationships you know being super close or whether there is a kind of connection between them where maybe it's like split I would just say it's like the female director thing again being able to like trying to emphasize that this is about female relationships yeah which is kind of what Kay was saying so one of like my favourite films in the last five years was Neon Demon by Nicholas Winding Refn and the DOP of the film is female, mm-hmm. which is, it feels like such a rare thing and one of the reasons I love the film is because it's so beautiful and so desirable and we, when we talk about things like the male gaze, mm-hmm. because there's so many women in the film and you think, wow, uh, even though she's splattered in blood, she looks sexy, but then you think, wait a minute, the way it's shot feels different and you know when I read about it it's like oh it's a female DOP this Mm. is why there's something just that extra bit special about it so after I filmed Maya uh, a lot of people were like oh okay you've got to make something more visceral because with gin you're kind of it's not there you know you can't really you can rarely see gin. People talk about kind of seeing apparitions and types, but they wanted something that was more physical. So again, I wanted to show a monster that hadn't really been dealt with before in cinema. So I chose the Jarel. Now, the Jarel is a South Asian witch. Um, now, I've only seen films dealing with Jarel in Bollywood films. She's very much depicted as like a siren type figure, you know, luring men, seducing men, killing men. 
her her true form is basically very Sadako-ish like, so kind of long black hair, but she has contorted limbs and things. And people say she lives in certain types of trees. Um, and again, it's one of those things that people still believe in now. People are terrified of the whole concept. So when I was researching Jarell and basically violence against women in South Asia, obviously Jyoti Singh's case was like the biggest case. Um, and I think one of the reasons that really affected me is because she was coming back from the cinema on a bus with a friend. And that could be any of us. That could be any, you know, any woman coming home from the cinema. She just wants to go and see a movie, mm-hmm. you know. And it just really affected me. And I thought, as as a female filmmaker, or just as a person, I had a kind of responsibility to kind of tackle something like this in my movie. So Black Lake is quite complex because although it deals with violence against women, it also deals with a cycle of violence. So I did talk to a lot of women who, or friends of women who had been subjected to violence and how they were after that, and. Why it's complicated is because obviously Me Too happened as well and you know we look at kind of women and the kind of violence they've been subjected to but Black Lake deals with women who then go on to become violent towards other people which is why it's complex in that sense. You know when um, Chip yeah. stabs Jennifer? Mm, yeah. Boyfriend. By the boyfriend. Yeah, Needy's boyfriend. He always wanted to bone Jennifer anyways. You think it's like a sort of yeah. sexual thing yeah. that he did there? Finally sticking A it weird yeah. thing though is like, even if Jennifer wasn't possessed, how would her actions have necessarily differed? I think the only thing that would have been different is she wouldn't have been killing the boys, but she probably would have went after the same ones just out of competition with yes. Needy. Yeah. Nice. Just like the goth guy was like, more into needy than Jennifer so she like wanted to go after him so I think the innate competition between them and that insecurity she would have done the same thing she just wouldn't have killed them yeah definitely so it was like maybe that's why no one thought anything was weird that she was doing because she would have did it anyway <laughs> yeah. yeah so they were like oh whatever but if she had that reputation why wasn't anyone in school like oh what if it's Jennifer what if she's killing them maybe because they all wanted to get with her as well which I mean I c- couldn't argue against Megan Fox is hot and racist <laughs> and discussion <laughs> So she's like kind of, basically, Jennifer is, what we're saying is Jennifer is a more complicated monster because she's a victim. She also is just quite monstrous, but she's also in competition with her friends. So she's like fragile, like fragile ego, insecure is the one I'm looking for. I think she's quite a really... She's a teenage girl that's a monster. (laughs) This is why this happens. Hell is a teenage girl. (laughs) Okay. She's eating boys. They like make her really pretty and glowy and her hair looks amazing. And then when she's hungry, she's weak and cranky and ugly. I mean, like ugly for her. Don't you get it? The dance, it'll be like an all you can eat buffet. The next monster that we're gonna talk about is the vampire and we're going to use the 2014 film, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night to discuss that. Did you guys like it? Like I didn't like it. I think mm. that's fair. It's like, one of those I like Iranian films. cinema. I like black and white films. I just did not vibe with this one. Boo. Oh. I just didn't. <laughs> it was like shot in a really pretty way though. Like I thought the way they did black and white was so creative because they really played with like light and a lot of contrast. Like yeah. it was mm-hmm. beautiful. That's what I mean. Don't get me wrong, like cinematography, yeah. It's just 
the plot. I was looking at my phone the whole time, and then I was like, okay, I need to like actually look because there's subtitles, and I don't speak Farsi, so I actually need to like look at it. That's why. Maybe that's why I got bored. Yeah, you mm. were what you were on your phone watching the movie. You have to keep yeah, it wow. on the visual. Yeah. yeah. So what did you think of her as like uh, like a vampire? Like what did we think of her as like a monstrous feminine? I felt like she must be very hungry because she ate all of two people in that movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> you mean she must have been hungry? Or? She must have been hungry because uh, she only ate twice in the movie. Like she only killed two people. But maybe that's all you need to sustain yourself as a vampire. How hungry are vampires? I don't yeah. know. Or she only is she only needs to feed off bad men. Maybe she doesn't actually need to, but she wants to. She it's not like Men. we see her like in the same way as like Jennifer's body where like she needs to eat and she yeah. like starts yeah. looking to get pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. Um but like in this one it's like she looks the same and it seems like she does do it more out of like joy or like justice in a weird vigilante way than like she's hungry, so retract last statement she's not hungry she's she's out here <laughs> fighting crime it's interesting yeah. you said vigilante because the whole film for me gave off that sort of outlaw spaghetti mm-hmm. western vibe and i didn't expect that at all from the movie and it was kind of, i think what made me enjoy it so much was that i was like oh okay it's sort of like a weird surreal western and i don't know i've never thought about the sort of idea of a vampire movie mixed with a western but do you think that would play into the monsters feminine anyway I read a really good article about that. Oh, nice. It was um, it was written by Abdi and Calafel. I hope I'm saying that right because I just want to credit them because it was really good. Because obviously Creed talks about how the vampire is like queer and it's she's sexually aggressive and she like seduces young women. Here we don't really have that, but it's queer in other ways. And they were talking about queer in a place that is not really defined. It's like on it's like a border. And that's kind of what the whole setting of the whole movie is. It's like spaghetti western. The time is like contemporary, but it's shot in black and white. It has 80s music. It's all kind of mixed in. And just, it is queer in a traditional sense because she's she's gender bending. Like she takes vengeance against somebody who, the character who's saying who like uh, abuses the prostitute or injects her against her will. And she, you know, kills him out of um, vengeance. So she's kind of reversing patriarchal roles or gender roles there so the article was also talking about how because she's an other like the people around her connect to her like the prostitute and the main guy i'm really bad with names what's his name um, dracula no, dracula wait, the guy whose name starts with an a yeah her love interest yeah Arash. 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 yeah so it's kind of like he's attracted to her as well because they're both have a queer outsider status and it then kind of by the end isn't really a horror at all but like more of like a kind of road movie. love story yeah like the end is like a big be- the beginning of a road movie yeah this um essay argued that they were like going off to find like some sort of queer utopia because oh, okay they're always on the awesome. fringes it was just kind of queer in that it's a about borders and boundaries. You see the oil rigging, the like yeah. industrial side of it. That is like similar to most Westerns, like that sort of duality between the industrial and also the frontier, the Wild West. And there is that from like a US Middle East perspective. It's like the oil. Yeah, yeah, with the oil. Like it's based in Iran. Like mm. Bad City is based in Iran. And the oil is basically being extracted. And that's why the city has absolutely <laughs> nothing else to itself. And it's kind of like the vampire extracting the blood out of the men. And it's basically like America 
invading a Middle Eastern country for the sake of economy. Yeah, okay, I totally Boom. did not read that. Roasted. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. She's doing the same to yeah. the male character. <laughs> and maybe that's like her sucking the oil back from like the patriarchal. Okay, same. I need to stop. Like it's literally forcing the West to confront the other because it's showing that they're quite intertwined. Yeah, definitely. I also thought it was interesting like how I guess in traditional vampire movies you see like the vampire kind of like allure this like innocent woman off and um, they like get together because he's really bad but she's really good, i.e. Twilight. But like in this movie, Arash is like her kind of person she's luring in, like in a way that she kind of seduces him a bit. Don't you think she's also a little bit seduced? By yeah, his, I think yeah. it's mutual. But then like when they have like the dance scene in her room and she's like resisting his neck, even though it's there, it's like mm. almost a bit sexual, I think. Yeah. Like yeah. in the sense of like, it's not just like her wanting to eat him, it's also like her sexual attraction to him that's kind of being repressed a bit. It was a very innocent love between them. It was like a sort of Americana teen movie. Like those sort of old fashioned, like, let's go sit on our car by the power plant. And like, <laughs> this happens in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> it is a power plant. And they're like sat, you know, it's so, it's kind of yeah. idyllic. And I don't know. It, so you're definitely not having your like, you know, teen like romance. Although you did say, and I agree, that was quite sexual when she was like resisting his neck. Otherwise, they're just like, well, he does is like caress her face. Yeah. It's all pretty PG. She like very much, I feel like, kind of sweeps him off his feet. And like the escape with him at the end of the car is more like he has to take the good parts and the bad parts. And I think traditionally in cinema in general, it's kind of like the woman has to take the good parts and the bad parts of the man. Yeah. And like accept that he's done something that wrongs her. But in this movie, it was like she did wrong him because, of course, she killed his father but it was also like his father was terrible to him and was a terrible person and drugged someone and so while it was like something negative and he kind of realized maybe she isn't purely good it also made him question like his sense of good and evil and kind of accept that she was the best that he was going to find in bad city the best i'll do yeah (laughs) i'll take you maybe it's like an acceptance of the monstrous feminine yeah so like yeah finally understood it or maybe he was castrated yeah, mm. but when we go back to like her sexuality with the with the weird guy, like the the first guy, mm-hmm. like the bad Sorry, guy. The most disturbing part about the movie is that I was attracted to him. No, the no, guy with I sex know. on his neck. Yeah, with sex on his neck. <laughs> yeah, I. I didn't call both of your moms. I was happy to die because, like, thank God, I'm, I can't keep I can't lie, I relate. Like it was the tattoos for sure. Yeah, thanks, But she thanks. was kind of, like, thanks. luring him in like Jennifer in a way. Yeah. Like, she was, like, sucking on his finger. Like, I found that really disturbing when so, she and did yeah. that. Atty was Atty. She had, did that as well, the, the drug dealer. Yeah. There's yeah. lots of... And then when she bit off the finger, mm. I was like, yes, girl. Yeah. She yeah. does castrate. In the, in the relationship, is he kind of, like, the character that... She almost doesn't really have a gender tied to him specifically, I would say. There's nothing about him that is innately masculine or feminine. He's wearing eyeliner. He's Yeah, he's just there. As Dracula. He's kind of like somewhere in between. There also, I think this film also like wants you to question gender as a category itself because it has that seemingly random clip of the transgender woman dancing with the balloon. So it's kind of like you're kind of always thinking about gender being forced to think about it at key points like that yeah and that happens like right after they have that intimate scene in her bedroom so maybe structurally the film is sort of pointing you towards like this is queer not in the traditional like lesbian sense but 
we're not going to follow gender categories. We're not even going to follow human categories of identity. Interesting. I really like that. I think another thing that kind of points to that is that like in Bad City, the people who are most vulnerable are the people who are, I guess, queer characters and women, which is kind of the way that it is in real life as well. And so it's interesting that it kind of explores that as well, especially with high numbers of trans women who have been murdered and also just violence against women in general being very high. I think it's an interesting thing to explore from that context. I think definitely with the director being American with Iranian descent, I think she can comment on that a lot more. I think that's, I mean, obviously there's all that context in the movie about women in society within Iran. But then there's also, like, as you said, in America, like the high numbers of trans women, especially like black trans women being murdered. Yeah. And I think she can kind of, and coming back to what Louisa said about like that sort of space in between and that queer space, it all plays back to that and why it ties so nicely with it being a Western and also a vampire film. Like all the themes tie together. Let's get to like the deep question though. Like when was the last time you did walk home alone at night? Um... I'm not going to lie. Not that it. recently. I do it all the time. I'm going to say the time. I think mine was literally yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I still get scared, like, no yeah. matter what time. It's interesting because I once had this conversation with my brother, and I said, yeah, I'm, like, I have to be considerate about where I might live because if I have to walk home alone at night, you know, I want to feel relatively safe. And he was like, what are you talking about? That's Why would you base where you live around mm. that? And I was like, it's because... because he's a boy. You're yeah, a mm. fucking boy. You've never had to consider that. Or but, even, like back home home like outside of London walking like along a busy road I I feel unsafe like because you know that someone's gonna honk their car yell something ridiculous at you yeah there's like this thing I can't remember who says but they were like oh women always live according to rape time like you have to always factor that into your day like you have to carry your keys between your fingers and like stuff like that like you have to always like live according to this clock which is something that people can't understand unless you are a vulnerable person yeah. So in that way, I guess this film's quite interesting because it's like it, you expect her to be the victim, but she's like, no, she's quite dangerous. And she's very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> she's finding yeah. like empowerment in her queer existence. And I like that it's the title because it, it really sets up that expectation of, oh, women, victim. Oh, no, she's walking home alone and I wonder what's going to happen. Yeah. But really, yeah. no, she eats all the boys. That that could have yeah. been construed. She kills all the boys. <laughs> she doesn't eat all the boys. I mean, when I first read it, I was like, oh, it's Iranian. A girl walks home alone at night. Like my Middle Eastern mind was just like, oh, she's going to die. I was. I think we're just programmed to feel like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. But that's a whole nice plot twist. But here we get the whole trajectory. Like you got victim to monster to equal. <laughs> idyllic character almost not idyllic but yeah yeah kind of normal i'd say but what is normal normal in the sense that she's not either (laughs) monster or victim she's just kind of being and they kind of find a way to be neither or be both thank you for listening to the monstrous feminine be sure to follow us on instagram at the monstrous feminine and rate us five stars and leave us lots of comments we'd love to hear what you think brooms up which is out